It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the LaneCast Ag Podcast as we continue to have our agriculture conversations with individuals in the countryside and out and about. And uh, our guest today will be Dr. Gary Brester with the Montana State University College of Agriculture, Economics, and Economics Department. We are going to discuss what is going on in the markets, whether that's the grain markets or the cattle markets. He will join us right after these words. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau, we care for the country. All right, a big thank you to the sponsor of today's podcast. As promised, we are turning our attention to Dr. Gary Brester, a well-known name in the agriculture economics world, a friend of farmers and ranchers, grew up there on an ag operation east of Billings. And uh, Dr. Brester, um, I understand the golf course is closed here on this May morning until noon. So I, right. I'm glad that you were able to uh, uh, yeah. throw on a, a collared shirt and not be in a polo with for us here today. <laughs> and that's exactly right. And when you suggested a time, this, this worked out pretty well. Otherwise, I'm out here. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely could have joined you uh, out. I could have been your caddy. We could have maybe done that. I, I'm not the greatest golfer, but I enjoy going out there and getting mad all the time when I can't hit anything. <laughs> well, you could probably learn a few new words from me. And, you know, I, and, and, and the viewers and the listeners should know, of course, I am retired. So it's not like, you know, I'm supposed to be at the office. So. <laughs> well, you're retired, but maybe I could actually learn what elasticity is or something sure. like that. We'll, that try I probably, again. we'll try again, Lane. You know, those eight, that 8 a.m. class uh, that we had to have. Was that Monday? Was that a Tuesday, Thursday class? Or I, I think so. Yeah. 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 I, I, that, yeah. Those are always the killers. But uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, in our intro, uh, we look at these markets, Dr. Brester, and we are recording this show the middle of May 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, farmers are enjoying the, the uptick in our grain prices. Not today. We, we, as of right now, we have spring wheat down 27 cents. Chicago wheat's down 11 cents. Corn is mixed, but live cattle futures are, are down about 115 for that front month. June, August is at 118. Feeder cattle are mixed higher in those August contracts up 30 cents at 151.45. KC July wheat's down nine cents at 648. But even with these lower prices, this is the highest prices we've seen in almost a decade in our grains market. And while it's not great for cattle producers. It's great news for our grain producers. And when the shoe's on the other foot, it's always tough to see, you know, your commodities price going lower. Uh, But we hear so much about corn and soybean and wheat sales due to China and uh, their harvest that did not go well last year. What, what is going on in these markets? What, what are, what are you telling folks out on the, out on the golf course or, or on lectures that you're giving here this, this spring and summer? What, what I'm telling folks is that um, economics is the one constant uh, uh, supply and demand in most economies uh, determine price and price uh, is not the cause of anything. It's the conveyance of information. It is, it is telling us that something is happening out there. 
And it, and, and Lane, unless governments get involved and have edicts and do all sorts of different things, it's really telling us about this interaction of demand and supply. And as you noted, um, we have uh, uh, close to record corn prices relatively, and certainly higher, uh, much higher than we've had uh, for the last seven or eight years. We had records a few years ago. And uh, yeah, we do focus on, on China. Why? Well, because the U.S. exports uh, 50 to 60 million metric tons of their corn a year. Um, China is, uh, has been years ago, a fairly major player in that. Uh, five years ago, they had about 2,500, uh, uh, 2.5 million metric tons of this 50 or 60. So, so, but, but nonetheless, there's still a lot of other countries that, that, that use our corn. And it might surprise people, Mexico and Japan are much larger, uh, five times larger, uh, I just lied to you, two times larger than, I, than, than China ever has been. Peru imports more corn from the US uh, than China does. So, you know, we tend to focus on things that have changed. And in the case of China, there has been a change. In the last four or five years, their imports of US corn was only around 800 million metric tons. Uh, that, uh, that, that's some, you know, and last year it was about 2000, which is where it was many years ago. So, you know, we see these changes and we think, well, that's got to be the only cause that's going on. But in reality, uh, many other countries have had to increase some of their uh, import, their needs for imported corn. The U.S. is the place you go to that, or you go to Brazil. And uh, all the word out of Brazil is that there hasn't been good weather conditions in Brazil. And so that has reduced uh, uh, some of their ability to supply the rest of the world as well. And we have to remember, uh, Lane, and this, this we of course know from the classes I taught, and you certainly remember this as well, when prices were low uh, for corn, relatively low, they were kind of at their long-term average the last three or four years. They weren't certainly weren't terribly low. But what, during that time, um, that's an incentive for producers to produce less corn. The, the price is conveying information that says either people don't want as much or that there's an awful lot around. And so when those prices were low, we didn't plant as many acres of corn either. And so, and we had kind of a, you know, not great harvest. They weren't, they weren't terrible harvests in terms of yields, but they were down a little. So the combination of all these things uh, has contributed to stocks being pretty low, inventories being pretty low, um, and the future potential for corn production throughout the world um, while in the U.S. looks pretty solid, it doesn't look very good in Brazil. So, so um, uh, the, you know, now, now it sounds like I know all this stuff, right? Like I should have been able to anticipate. Well, if I did, you should ask me. Uh, you know, did did you chart the market? You know, did you make sure that you were in the market enough to to win? Of course not, <laughs> you know, because if if they did, no one would talk to you about these sorts of things. I mean, we just don't know these things. So, you know, we're seeing we're seeing market supply and demand at work. Um, and uh, 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 you said prices have moderated recently. Yeah, you know, prices are starting to kind of maybe back off a little bit, but they're still very good on, on the feed grain side. Yep. And I, I've had a lot of calls uh, from <clears throat> my uh, experienced uh, ranching uh, community listeners. I've had Instagram messages from pr younger producers as well. And uh, the main question that they're saying, so, so why is China buying all of this feed grain? And my main response is, well, they're, they're stocking it up. And 
African swine fever is still an issue over there, but they're hoping obviously to have their protein sector recover, but yeah. uh, can we maybe talk again about African swine fever? And I, I believe if <clears throat> this is just uh, you know, a rancher lane that wanted to have really good calf prices for my little broke cow herd, I, I truly believe going into 2020, we were going to see outstanding prices for our calves to, to fill that protein need in all over Asia and in Europe that have been impacted by African swine fever. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, really changed all of that. But jumping back to the current scenario, African swine fever and classical uh, swine fever uh, in Japan is popping up. Is this the, the, the rebuilding efforts by China or is it just maybe crop failures in China? Well, I, you know, I think several things have happened uh, and, and, and probably, I'm sorry, but with China, I don't know how much a person should really believe from crop yeah. or anything else. In reality, um, and I'm not being negative here. It's just, we have enough experience that it's hard to understand. But in reality, the best way to see what's going on is, is what the, is their responses, what, what's going on. And they're, and they're importing more corn than they have in, in several years, which tells me either they've had poor crops or they need a lot of corn to, to feed animals that, that maybe they didn't have an inventory of earlier. And, and now maybe they're starting to expend that. Uh, so those are possibilities. But you mentioned the, the COVID epidemic, and, and I think it's important for people to understand. Um, I've been studying agricultural economies for 40 years now of my life, and I still don't understand this. I can't wrap my head around the scale of production agriculture. If nothing else, we, we slaughter over 100 million head of hogs a year. We slaughter 9 billion birds a year with a bee. And so it's hard for me to even understand the scale of these operations. So it's also hard then for us to understand what happens when logistic in the logistical side of things, when things slow down. And COVID-19 in the past year ha has slowed down all sorts of things. The, the supply chain for lumber, if anybody's had to buy a two by four lately, or OSB for $45 a sheet, those things are, are very expensive. Rubber, tires, uh, I actually had to deliver a couple of pairs of irrigating boots that I found in Bozeman down to Laurel this weekend because they couldn't find any around there. We have a, and if you notice right after COVID hit, grocery stores did, had something we had never seen in this country since the depression. Um, uh, and, and, and that is there were spots on the shelves that were empty. Now you have to understand most of the world functions with empty shelves. They seldom have anything on the shelves. And we're so used to having everything. Now, why is that? Well, what happened? Well, logistical supply system. Uh, uh, you, you can't move a boat when you want to. You can't get containers moved. You can't get things restocked in, in our stores because of this pandemic. So this had, why the story? The story is, is that this has had an impact also on all sorts of logistics, including the, the movement of corn, and meat and soybean meal and, and all those kinds of feedstuffs. So it's not that surprising in a world of more uncertainty to see these higher prices for these commodities. Costs have just risen. Um, now, will they go back down? I think so, they should. I mean, things should return to normal. And add into that some uncertainty caused by international governments being upset with each other, meaning tariffs and, and embargoes and all of these disrupt commerce. And there may be good reasons for it. Not, it's not what you or I want to talk about here because there is no right answer to that. But the point is, is that when you interrupt markets, um, you're going to get these uh, 
things happening that are a little unusual. And I think we're seeing a, quite a bit of that right now. And, and just speaking more about uh, the pandemic, we, we, we saw the shutdown, especially <clears throat> on uh, out-of-home dining, really, that, that impacted the restaurants. And, and we are seeing, obviously, the nation is opening up. They're, 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 the CDC is recommending, obviously, that folks that are fully vaccinated can go out without their masks on. And, and we are seeing the economy uh, open up. I mean, Miles City was fully open for the buck and horse sale this past sure. <laughs> week. Well, there's some things you can't shut down. <laughs> But, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me there, kind of, I did not go to Mile City and get the, the, the bucking horse crud. I, I was in Very, the eastern part yeah. of the state. That's what they call that now, the bucking horse crud. Yeah. They used to call it the swine flu, and yeah. I was, <laughs> we all drank like pigs when we were that young, but I don't anymore. I'm sorry. I, I, did I just get us off subject? That's okay. All but, right. you know, you know we, we look at as our restaurants open up, and uh, I, I do just want to point out that uh, – uh, um, the the fake imitator meat uh, uh, the, uh, Im- the the impossible foods uh, company they lost uh, about one 1.28 million dollars in their last quarterly earnings as uh, they say restaurants not being open were the, the main reason why they lost uh, money and, and that could be the reason or, or folks just aren't ordering it and hopefully that that is the the case there but we are seeing restaurants open up and, and um uh, 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 an individual with the U.S. Meat Export Federation one time called it, uh, uh, especially in the Asian market, because they've been open for for probably six months at this point. Uh, consumers are revenge buying, and uh, I, I really like that term. And I'm not going to claim to coin that term, but in, in re- revenge buying, going out and and having that ribeye or that tomahawk or that nice cut of of good beef protein, lamb or pork, whatever it might be. Um, and, and we see the increases in these box beef prices as well. Uh, it, obviously, with these restaurants opening up, folks are wanting to have a nice quality meal now that they feel safe to go out in these larger cities. Yeah. Well, so, so let's, let's investigate that a little bit. When restaurants closed, uh, we still consumed beef. We just consumed it more at home. Yep. Again, the, the logistical thing of getting things from restaurant style cut quality and packaging to get them into uh, a home retail it is, is a major problem. And it's something that I don't even understand because I'm not in the industry, uh, but it certainly was, was a problem. The, the interesting thing about restaurant food uh, and protein sources, and especially beef, the, the research all shows this, is that uh, uh, when people travel and when they go to uh, restaurants um, and hotels, uh, beef is sort of the center plate cut. Uh, pork to some extent, poultry much less so. And as a result of that, these are going to be the highest quality, the highest end cuts. And this has huge and higher margins that are just, so this has huge impacts on, uh, on the price of uh, box beef, on the price of back cattle, and then on the price of feeder cattle. So uh, the, the restaurant trade is very important uh, because of the high end nature and the types of cuts that are being used. So having the restaurants open uh, is, a, is a big plus uh, for the protein industry, but it's probably more so for beef than for any of the other commodities. And uh, speaking of just beef in general, uh, we, we touched on labor just a little bit ago. We, we saw just the impact that having um, a labor shortage and the backlog that it created in cattle 
um, and, and cattle fared much better than uh, the, the hog and, and swine industry that did have to depopulate because it's just a different uh, species. Uh, the finishing um, is so much different. And so we did see populations of swine depopulated just to, to, to be humane to them. And right. a cattle, we could change up those feeding rations and whatnot. So really, we... We, we weathered that much better than I thought we would have yeah. a year ago uh, plus at really at this point with that backlog, but labor is still an issue as we look at these packing plants and, and whatnot. And uh, just in general, our grocery stores or, or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when, when we look at the labor issue with these packing plants, what, um, what are you hearing or what can we expect kind of moving forward, uh, making sure that we can continue to keep the processing line going? You know, uh, uh, there isn't a, a producer out there that doesn't deal with labor issues right now. Um, people are saying they can't find people, even when they pay what they consider quite a bit of money. So, so farmers and ranchers all have experienced this for quite some time. But, but increasingly, grocery stores are seeing the same thing. At Belaine here in Bozeman, we have grocery stores that have now hiring uh, out signs out almost continually. They don't even take them down anymore. And so the packing industry is even more of a problem with that. Um, because it's not fun work. This is very, very hard work. If anybody's toured a packing plant, you know what I'm talking yep. about. And so to get people there uh, is, is, is hard and it's still very labor intensive. There are some, there's some, there's some machinery sorts of things, better saws and you know, things like that. But the, nonetheless, it's very labor intensive. And what's happened in a lot of the packing plants is, is that they've had to slow these chain speeds down as you have to distance people um, and as people don't come to work as frequently, because maybe they are sick, and you don't want them in the packing plants if, if they're not feeling well. All those things have sort of uh, con uh, contributed to um, uh, slower chain speeds, um, uh, getting animals through uh, at an appropriate time, scheduling logistics again. So it shouldn't be that surprising that we have higher costs right now uh, throughout the supply chain, um, including in, in the packing plant. And, and uh, is there a solution to this? Um, it, it's just, look, we live, in a, we live in a developed economy. You know, one solution is to go someplace where the labor is very plentiful and very inexpensive. I mean, we could have packing plants in Somalia, you know, but, but nobody wants to live there, right? I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a society where, where, where standards of living are rising, we have to expect price wages to rise. That's what we want. It, it, you know, it means that we have a better life, but it also uh, it contributes to the cost, obviously, of trying to get things done. And and uh, uh, I was down in Laurel uh, this weekend, uh, helping move gated pipe, getting out in the field. And my brother hired a couple of young guys because we're too old to do most of it anymore. Uh, so I just specialized in you know the labor things that I can do, which was move the pickup ahead. <laughs> you need a lot of education to do that and there's a lot of training that goes on and stuff like that so you know but, but we have all of us have trouble uh, uh finding labor and uh, especially for things that are hard to do um and and farming and ranching is right up there <laughs> with things that are hard to do and uh, i i don't know if you followed this but uh supposedly last week there was a closed door meeting um, in Phoenix between um, the American Farm Bureau, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, RCAF USA, U.S. Cattlemen's Association, National Farmers Union, the Livestock Marketing Association, uh, a closed door meeting um, looking at a possible announcement this week. And, and with all of my sources out there, I, I haven't got a word from anyone in these organizations. I've been trying 
but of course, this meeting came as the latest sterling beef profit tracker showed packer margins hitting $929 per head. Um, yeah. And of course, there's other that that's just one one number with that, uh, which is an increase of more than $260 per head from the past week. So a- as we look at this, I know that's going to come back to the the cash and negotiated cash conversations. Yeah. Um and we that our last conversation we discussed you know a government mandate on on the cash cattle trade um and again i you don't you don't have to say anything in in terms of that closed door meeting because i really uh, other than mentioning that right now what um, as we look at these cash prices and the legislative government effort by some uh, in in congress um being pushed by some by many in the agriculture industry to have a set uh, cash price uh, negotiated out there or just a government set price. Have your uh, feelings or economic outlook on that changed? I guess, uh, could you maybe share an overview of that and give you a soapbox moment? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, if you don't know what's going on out there, then nobody does, Lane. So I, I mean, let, let's, you know, I want to, you know, let's, let's be, let's be fair. Um, uh, secondly, um, yes, uh, there's been, so here's a quick story. Uh, at one time, a uh, hundred years ago, all cattle were had had a, when they exchanged hands were negotiated, generally through an auction yard, uh, auctioneer and buyers and sellers. Uh, that has changed over time as we have more electronics and different things we can use. Much of this is done by video now, but increasingly, many of the relationships between the packing companies and the feeding companies, uh, some of them are very large too, by the way. Um, many of these have now morphed into a situation where uh, cattle are being traded on a, based upon an, a, a pre-agreed on formula. And about 60 to 70% of cattle now are traded on a formula basis and about 15% on sort of a traditional auction type situation. It's done electronically, but, but nonetheless, a traditional basis. And so when cattle prices have now been a little low for the last couple of years, there's been concern that those negotiated cash prices are too low because not enough animals are being done that way. The formulas often are based on the negotiated cash trade. And as it becomes, the economists call this thin, a thin market, there's concern about whether there's enough efficiencies going on. We actually had a workshop on this lane about a month ago uh, uh, where we had the experts uh, talk about what's gone on in these markets. And once again, I I think I want to caution people a little bit you know, sometimes the idea that I just need to do something, you know, we have to do something, it, it's not really true. If, if you do something that causes more harm than good, then it shouldn't have been done to begin with. You know, we might feel good about doing something, but that's not always the, the wisest course of action. Now, we do want markets to function, to provide information, to, to transmit information from uh, consumers all the way back to the genetics producers in the livestock industry. Uh, the question is, is that occurring? And, and what has happened with these formulas? And what's really happened is that these formulas have evolved because the players in the market have found it less costly to do it this way. In addition, as formulas have been used more prevalently, a lot of the things in these formulas that are being included are things like quality characteristics. And Lane in the last, and, and you need to talk to a meat scientist, someone who really knows the right numbers, but. At one time, the number of cattle that, that, that were graded prime and high choice was actually quite small. And today, that number is basically doubled on a percentage basis. And, and most of the feeling is this is because we've had contracts. 
Yeah, just like Coors and, and InBev and others have contracts for malting barley that specify certain characteristics. If you don't have this level of protein, if you have too much protein, if you, if you don't have this level of plumpness, we're not taking your grain. Well, a lot of the formulas do the very same thing. They take the cattle, but, but they pay you more when you have the quality that they're looking for. So there's much discussion about this. Now, now one of the, the re reactions has been from a variety of groups and, and uh, congressional uh, uh, mandates, or, uh, proposed mandates, is that we should uh, put a set percentage of cattle that should be traded on a negotiated cash basis. And the number you see throwing around are anywhere from 30% of the cat of total cattle trade have to be done a certain way to as much as 50%. Uh, again, Lane, you know, here's one of the situations where so many of us uh, just don't understand the costs that we impose on a market when we start mandating that things have to be done in a certain way. Um, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be mandated. It's just that we have to think about the costs and the benefits of doing so. So some research I've done just finished recently uh, indicates that um, uh, the, it, it's quite surprising, Lane, how, how, how small of a sample you really need in order to get efficiency. Let me give you this example. Whenever there's a presidential election, which appears about every year now, it seems, but <laughs> whenever we have a presidential election or any election, there's a polling process. Who's going to win? Who did you vote for? And in reality, probably less than half of a percent of the entire voting population is ever polled. You don't need, you just need a representative sample. You don't need to poll a hundred million people. Um, they poll two or 3,000 and statistically that's sufficient. The key is it has to be a random sample um, and you can't be sort of leading questions and things like that. Now, how does that relate back to cattle? Well, well it is 30% of the cattle traded the number that's needed to have representation. And um, there are times when you need a lot of cattle, when prices are varying a lot, you need a big sample. And, in, and some of our research shows that, that you might need all of the cattle traded that way if prices are bouncing around day to day and week to week a lot. In general, they, uh, that doesn't happen. And so you actually need a pretty small sample, smaller than what most people would think in order to get representation. So, uh, uh, you know, numbers in that really seven to 10% range statistically seem to be sufficient to do what, what we would like the cattle industry to do. Um, so, so not really a soapbox. This is really, you know, some research that, that a lot of people in the industry have looked at, uh, mostly agriculture economists uh, like me and, and others in the profession. Um, uh, and, and the concern that, that many of us have is, first of all, don't overestimate how many, what percentage you need to have a representative sample. Yep. And secondly, realize that when you do this, you are interfering with commerce, with, with exchanges between uh between people that run companies. Uh, and whenever you say the packing industry has to buy an X percentage of their animals a certain way, you're also saying that the people who feed cattle have to sell an X percentage that way. And people uh, 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 like, uh, uh, like, like the packing, uh, the, the feedlots we have in this state, which are smaller, Okay, um, a, a lot of these uh, operators, Bob Peterson and out of Solaris Feeders, I've talked with, with those folks and they said, look, if we don't use formulas, no one's gonna come look at our cattle because we, only, we don't have very many. 
And as a result, if we have a formula, we know they're going to take them. We can, we can base our pricing on them. So we have to be really careful because this can often hurt the smaller producers much more than the larger producers uh, of cattle. And in Montana, all of our feedlots are considered relatively small. I mean, I think they're big, but they're not 100,000 ahead. Uh, so so there's a lot of, there's a lot of rules and, and generally, um, rule of thumb and knee-jerk reactions are always bad. You know, at least they have been in my life. You know, I, 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 I got to be more careful when I do things. Um, <clears throat> off the top of your head, do you know how many cattle from the U.S. are being fed up in Canada? Uh, again, I know that's not a specific USDA report, but when you look on Ag Twitter and you see all the Canadian feedlot operators, I mean, they're they're reporting thousands of head every week going from the U.S. up to Canada. And uh, I, I always just find that interesting because we, we have this love-hate relationship with our neighbor to the north, especially on the beef protein end. But yeah. if I'm getting offered a better price for a feeder up in Canada, cow-calf operator, or are you going to tell them you can't? Sure. Well, <laughs> it's your... sort of thing. I have a love-hate relationship with Canadian rye whiskey, too, by the way. You know, yeah, we do. There, there are actually our numbers. I've got them somewhere. I'm sorry, Lane. I don't have no worries. But we I, do export the U.S., you know, when I this is an interesting point you make. We say the U.S. exports some calves to Canada where they get fed. And sometimes those animals are exported from there back to the U.S. where they get slaughtered. But the U.S. doesn't export anything. You, you said it. You, you made a, 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 an allusion to it. You said, yeah. look, um, so a rancher gets an offer from a Canadian feedlot and has to compare that to the offer they get from a background or a, or a U.S. feedlot. It's people that make these decisions. Is it worth it for me to, and basically the money all spends the same. I mean, U.S. dollars are U.S. dollars and you can actually spend Canadian dollars too. I know how to, I know how to do this. So the idea here is, is that we have to remember the U.S. doesn't export or import anything. Um, people trying to make a living do this. Okay. And as a result, when you interfere with those, you'd be a great example. Suppose you said you can't trade with the Canadians anymore. Well, you just took somebody away from an opportunity, maybe somebody on the high line, uh, maybe someone who operates on both sides of the border. Yeah. And you said, I can't sell cattle there. Why not? And, and that's the problem when we, when we interfere with, with uh, trade. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, that trade doesn't have to be international. That's the same problem that we get when we interfere with trade between Lane and Gary. Uh, yep. You say you can't do that. Uh, I bought a pair of irrigating boots for a neighbor who couldn't find any down in Laurel. We took them down there. Uh, I got paid back for those. Suppose you said you can't transport irrigating boots across the county because they're too valuable right now. Or you, you just took away an opportunity for someone to, uh, oh God, it's not, a, maybe that's a good thing, not have to wear irrigating boots. I don't know. <laughs> it has a bad example. I don't know. Hey, um, have you followed uh, the, the recent cattle fraud cases that have been published lately, whether it's the Easter Day ranches, the feedlots up in the Pacific Northwest, and then also last week, uh, another cattle scheme out of Texas, uh, like a $100 million scheme there, but uh, yeah. the, the Easter Day um, case came out. Obviously, it's been in the headlines, Cody Easterday admitting to creating 200,000 head of fake cattle for, for uh, over a number uh, of years. Yeah. What, and just, uh, what, what impact does that have on calf prices? Over 200,000 head of fake cattle. I mean, we're seeing, obviously, I'm concerned about the markets and everything, but all these guys that are trying to pull the wool over even the, the big bad packer uh, over there, uh, over Tyson's eyes and i can see 
hundreds of thousands of head of cattle being fed and whatnot, how this could get missed. How does that impact calf prices? Well, well first of all, remember, we're, we're probably talking about 25 million head of cattle uh, being, you know, being fed and slaughtered a yep. year. So 200,000 is a big number, but it's not a, a large percentage number. But up in uh, a region that could have an impact, yeah, though. Certainly it can. I mean, and, and so, you know, so what, what do we learn? We learn that, gee, guess what? When there's money involved, there's incentives for people to commit fraud. And, uh, uh, and so should this be allowed? Of course not. You know, one of the best uses of government is to have justice and law and order and infrastructure and those sorts of things. And so this needs to be taken care of. And I've always said, can I do the soapbox thing now? You know, yeah, I used to yeah. carry the class all the time. I've always said, if you take a couple of these people that, that try to defraud folks in this manner um, and put them in a real federal penitentiary, you know, like Rikers, you know, I, I, I think a lot of this would go away pretty quickly uh, because uh, uh, if, if you make the penalty strong enough, people will start saying, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. And that's really what should happen to people. I mean, one of the one of the worst things that happens, first of all, we, these are big publicly, you know, uh, publicity. And of course, you're in the you're in the media industry. We're going to see a lot about those kind of cases. In reality, it's such a small percentage of all transactions that occur, but it does have an impact, right? I mean, people start be wondering, uh, is this safe? Is this secure? It, it, is this for real? And so the harm that the, whether it's a financial pyramid scheme uh, or, or, or a cattle scheme or or whatever, um, uh, you start adding risk to these things and things get more costly. And um, uh, that's really, uh, I think that when people lose confidence in uh, uh, in exchanging things, uh, that was the cause of the Great Depression. Uh, much of the uh, COVID economic impacts occurred because we all lost some confidence in the ability to uh, provide staples to grocery stores, right? Uh, uh, various runs and all sorts of products. And so uh, right now, gasoline in the Southeast, uh, you know, the mob reaction of, have you seen the pictures? I'm filling oh, yeah. garbage sacks with gasoline. I, like, I wonder if they're smoking on the way home. I guess we don't have to worry about that. You know? I mean, I, I guess in one way, this sort of improves the gene pool. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. You probably can't use that. But, um, you know, the uh, uh, you know, when we lose confidence, uh, we do strange things. And and so I think the bigger impact of these sorts of fraudulent activities is always losing confidence in our ability to, uh, 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 to trust uh, transactions. And it's a very small percentage of all transactions. Yep. Well, it is. But I mean, even if it's one or two pennies or a nickel, up in that Pacific impact. Northwest from Idaho, Montana, they might be getting fed out there. Yep. Um, I, I just, uh, that, that impacts the, the, the cow calf yep. producers bottom line. And so I, right. I just want to point out that there's, there's folks within every sector of this industry that, you know, make these decisions and it, uh, it, it screws over producers at the end of the day. Heck, I, I I'm sure you saw, uh, on, uh, Montana television networks, uh, story about a Bozeman man. He gets two and a half years and a $450,000 restitution for a cattle wrestling scheme up, up near Wilsow. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. If there was more of a, if you had to go to that high security prison, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think people would hear about that pretty quick. And, um, uh, uh, but, but again, that was, sorry, that, um, uh, that was soapbox stuff. So my bad. Nope. That was your soapbox. That, that is a okay, but Hey, let's, I'm let's tired. I do a, old guys do lots of soapbox stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you notice this late. 
<laughs> hey, let's go back to that corn conversation. Obviously, corn is going to be the driver here in the spring and summer of 2021 for wheat prices um, and for calf prices. And I know that's uh, for our cow-calf producers out there that are listening to this. They're, they're going to want to know the Gary Brester um, outlook for what a, what a 550-pound steer calf is going to bring. But how long do you think this corn how long is China going to continue to buy corn? What, what are the indicators out there from this communist nation and, and the companies, Chinese yeah. companies, <laughs> uh, US that, are, that are buying? That are selling. Yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I, I, do. I simply don't know. If I did, I'd have a position in the corn market. Um, you know, so much depends upon just how well the corn crop does this year. And, and uh, my guess is, is that uh, uh, the current, uh, I, think, I think there's a, because of the COVID slowdown of variety things lots of countries now are trying to restock uh and 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 in many countries by the way lane it's not companies it is it is the governments that are doing this which makes it very difficult to figure out what's going on uh, that's number one number two yeah uh, so research i've been doing over the years uh, on how much your question is it how much is higher corn prices influence feeder cattle prices because corn the major feed ingredient in a feedlot if i'm a, uh, if i'm out here at solaris and and I'm trying to feed cattle and I got to buy corn. I can't, I have to bid something down. Somehow I've got to find some margin in there and feeder cattle takes some of the brunt of that. It's quite surprising to me though, uh, in the research that I've done over the years to see that while it has an impact, it's never as big as I thought, I think it should be. You know, people, uh, people figure out ways to feed, uh, 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 you know, other things and they put in the DGs and, and which is part of the corn complex, I know, but you know, they, they, they do do a lot of it. I've even heard of some wheat being fed again yep. uh, and some other things. So, so it hasn't, it doesn't have as big as an impact as you might think. Now, let me, let me, how do you know that? Well, we've done some research to try to see it has an impact. Yes. Yes. Not as big as what one might, as much as I would expect at least. So let me give you this example. If you look at the, you mentioned the feeder cattle futures just uh, today or yesterday, today, whatever they did. But if you look at, at feeder cattle futures and the difference in, in what feeder cattle in Chicago are trading for on the market and what they actually end up trading for in Montana, we call that difference the basis. Historically, if you have a, a right now, the you said, what is Gary's breast forecast? I don't have one. I just basically look at the futures market and take a look at the historical difference in when we wean cows and we sell cows in the fall between what historically the the, the price at that time is in the futures market versus the price that people get here on average. And right now that, that futures price is, is giving us a price for lighter calves, five to six weight steers, you know, somewhere between, let's just say we're at 170, maybe 171, 172 is a midpoint right now. Um, uh, if you're a little heavier calf, that's six to seven weight, the earlier calves, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of background in creep feeding, whatever, um, you're, you're somewhere around that high 150s, 158, 159, somewhere right now. Will that be what they are then? No, it'll be different. Markets change. But right now you can pretty much lock in that kind of a price, either through forward contracts, if you can find somebody or through options or through futures market. Um, so, you know, and, and the point is, is that the, the, the long-term average price of calves in today's dollars is somewhere around that one. 55, somewhere in there for, for all ranges of cap. So really we're looking at prices this fall right now based upon futures prices, not, not prognostication by me or anything, but uh, thousands of people involved in the markets every day, trading cattle so they can manage risk. Um, uh, we're above average trend right now. 
And um, that's about what, you know, anything that goes way above that won't last very long. Anything goes way below that won't last very long either uh, because people will adjust how much they produce. So, you know, we're, we're above the long-term trend. And, and uh, you know, I talk to cattle producers and, 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 you know, those that know their average costs go, well, you know, I, I, you know, I can make a living there, you know, and, and that's really what that long-run average cost tells us, that long-run average price. So, you know, we're, we're above trend a little bit. That's a good thing. Um, uh, could it change a lot? Sure. Uh, but, you know, right now you can, you can do pretty well and stay in that, let's just call it that 160, 165 range name, lane across all, across all categories. And that's, you know, what I'm hearing from all the other, whether it's Cattle Facts or Rabobank or, or all the other <clears throat> groups out there. But drought is still going to be one of the factors out there that's going to impact the commodity uh, markets because that the impact it could have on our, our crops and, of course, on, on our summer range. What sure. impact is the forecast looking at? Obviously, we do have precipitation in the forecast and that that has producers' optimism up quite a bit. But I mean, I was uh, about a month ago, my dad and I were sitting at uh, one of the local livestock markets and I'm sitting there and, and dad says, don't you bid on these pears. And, and I, cause I'm looking at them like, God, they're, they're, they're young pears, you know, they're a little later, but you know, they, they, they they'll fatten up and then gain with our calves and, or, or with the other family operations. And, and, but he goes, there might not be grass out there. And, and I know that's the conservative approach and, you know, all this young sure. bucks wanting to, oh, 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 you know, optimism, but, you know, I, I'm glad he pulled me back from that probably, but I'm a little more optimistic with it. But what impact could this have, say, if, if folks are sending their replacement heifers or those older pairs to town, how does that impact the long-term uh, uh, trend of the U.S. cattle herd? Is it going to stay flat? Or are we going to try to rebuild after this? Can yeah. folks afford to rebuild? I, I guess, what is uh, that magic eight ball you might be shaking with well, it? First of all, um, uh, drought's bad for everybody. You know? I mean, I mean nobody, nobody wants to see this, whether you're an urban resident or, or a rancher or a farmer, you know, drought is just something. Secondly, I know this for sure, we're probably worse at predicting the weather than we are at predicting markets. Um, uh, I know this, uh, whatever's happening right now is not a good forecast of what's gonna happen in the future um, in weather, <laughs> in terms of weather. Uh, as a result of that, um, every time I think this is the end, it's never gonna rain again, we get four inches somewhere, right? Even Miles City had some last yeah. week. Well, Rolf out there told me that they, were, they had a couple inches of rain and her dad was finally happy. <laughs> you believe that? Her dad was happy out there. That's amazing. Great guy. And uh, uh, but but one of the one of the things that, that we we tend to do is I would say your dad. Uh, I think experience helps a lot. Yep. And cautious because he has seen times when these things have happened. Can we forecast it? I haven't seen it. I, I, how many people? How many vacations? How many things have been wrecked because we didn't forecast the weather right? It was only three days away. So you know, and I think the best thing you can do is say, you know, my little brother tells me this all the time. He says, you know, when when we haven't had rain for a while, he said, look, there's a reason why there's an average rainfall in Montana, wherever you happen to be at. Not very much in eastern Montana, but there's a reason why there's an average over a year, and that's because at some time during the year you're going to get some moisture. You know. It doesn't happen every year. It's an average, right? So all you can do is expect sort of average rainfall and be uh, perhaps, as your dad was saying, uh, cautious, right? Because we have not been in a period of time where we get lots and lots and lots of rain. I think that is certainly true. It hasn't been since, I don't know, what, seven, eight years ago when Fort Peck spilled over. I mean, it's been, yep. it's been a, a quite a while since we've had that happen. But I never thought we'd see Fort Peck Dam filled again. I mean, I, that, that thing was so low, you, they couldn't get boats in. One year later, the thing is they're using the spillway, the spillway for the first time. So, 
these things can change pretty quick. Um, average is about as best as you can hope for. And uh, in, in, when you have so much invested in it, uh, caution is always probably a pretty good idea. Now, um, from your perspective, I, and I know you, you hit the speaking circuit, you share a lot of great strategies and tips. Um, and, and one thing I think producers maybe sometimes on the cow cap into things, maybe they don't have a drought management plan or, or emergency plan in place. Uh, last week, uh, Dr. Darrell Peel, one of your colleagues out of uh, Oklahoma State, shared some uh, great uh, uh, drought management tips, just uh, especially for the cow-calf sector uh, in the livestock sector. What, what, off the top of your head, what are some things and why or some uh, items people should think about and who they should maybe plant, have a drought management plan in place? Uh, have a timeline? What, what are some of those important things that maybe people miss or don't think about because we're op- some people might be internal optimists or maybe they are just <laughs> always grumpy about the, what the weather might be? What uh, what are some of your tips there? Well, for well, first, did, you, did you know Daryl got his undergraduate master's degree here at Montana State? Really? Yeah, right. He's was that about, he was probably two or three years before I, I was there? Yeah, yeah, he's a thousand years old, so that's probably <laughs> true. But yeah, he was a, a couple of years younger than me. Uh, we went through the program pretty much together. Uh, and, and so I think Daryl's thoughts are very good. In, in terms of what you're suggesting, you know, I think there's, there, rather than talk about specific drought management strategies, like, you know, range and moving yep. cattle around, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about these sorts of things, but I do know from a general business purpose, you're talking about how do I manage business risk? And, and some of that is having uh, a, a plan in place to look, if we really don't get any rains, do we have some hay stored? Can we get hay? Do we have a source? Can we move? I know up at, uh, up at Turner, a great friend of ours up there, you know, they keep Kenyan trying to figure out ways to get water down to cattle. You know, yep. how, how can I deliver water when it gets short in our natural ponds and things like that? So they actually have done some things where they hope they don't have to use it. I mean, gosh, you hate doing things like that, but you got to have some sort of a, a, of, a, of an idea, and most ranchers do. Um, but as a business management plan, what are some of the things? Well, um, uh, uh, do we have sufficient uh, uh, deep enough pockets? I mean, sufficient savings to, to weather a, uh, a, a, a situation where we're going to struggle for a year or two. Um, um, are, are we well, you know, is some diversification possible? Are there some other sources of income? You know, general, are we managing our production risk? Do we have a plan for uh, 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 managing either the loss of a crop, maybe through crop insurance or something else, uh, storage? Uh, do we have a, a business risk management plan on the price of our calves? You know, we very often, for example, and this is not just drought related, but uh, we very often, you know, would be devastated if a rancher lost 10% of their uh, calf herd to uh, a snowstorm uh, or, or weight, not getting enough, that weight on because of drought. But a 10% loss in price, reduction in price is exactly the same effect. Yep. And so when you see prices out here, you know, this 160, 165, the things we talked about, um, uh, do we want to just say, okay, well, we'll probably get that or we might not, or we might do better. Or do we want to have at least some of those calves uh, managed? Do I have sufficient, uh, 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 how is my loans, uh, my borrowing, my debt structure? Uh, is, is it is it stretched out to the point it should be? Am I capitalized properly? Am I using my oper- my operating money properly? Um, uh, yeah, these are things that ranchers think about all the time. This is this isn't anything new, but I think sometimes you know it's a forest for the trees problem, right? When you're laying out gated pipe, you forget the reason for it, right? It's just hard, darn hard work, as I could tell you. But uh, uh, I, I think to a great extent, uh, ranchers are doing this. We probably don't, as ranchers, when you're so dang busy and you've got all this stuff on, we probably don't take enough time to reflect on sort of. 
bigger picture stuff because you're in the weeds all day long. But I think anytime you can step back and and uh, have a conversation and say, look, you know what? Uh, let's not worry about the worst thing, but are we sufficiently? And that, by the way, that includes insurances as well. Yeah. You know, property insurance, you know, uh, 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 liability insurance and those sorts of things as well. And also a lot of folks online uh, this past week really talking about that price inflation we've seen on retail values as well, yeah. Dr. Brester. Yeah. Um, just going off of some statistics here, the USDA all fresh beef retail price in April averaged $6.48 a pound. That price was 4.1% larger than last year and 1.5% higher than March. Yeah. And when folks look at that and they take a picture when, when, a, when a livestock producer takes that picture and sees what that retail price is doing, and, and may I note that the June-July five-year average is around $5.90. Sure. A little bit of a uh, painting a picture there. I, I understand the frustration. And when they see that price increase, what that per pound is, is getting versus that mid-160s that a cow-calf yeah. producer uh, might receive. But... <laughs> And I'm going to, this will lead into our local processing uh, topic as well. But what are some of those important things that folks need to think about to keep their blood pressure down just a little bit? Because I I get it. I I, I understand. I get mad when I see those prices higher because the cow-calf producer, the rancher gets blamed for those higher prices by the consumer. We see it all the time. Like beef's so expensive in the grocery store. um, You know, we, we hear that from consumers. Um, uh, could you maybe just talk about that supply chain and what folks should really be taking away or thinking about when they yeah. see that higher price? Yeah, I, I, I will. Um, again, um, uh, it is expensive. I, I have to say this in some of my talks, you know, and, and at Tarantins, and they kind of they kind of sit back and say, but, but folks, you have to understand, nobody wants your calf. I mean, I know what to do with it. I've got a little corral. We, we feed a few, just, you know, home consumption. I know what to do with it. But most human beings in this country, uh, if you hand them a calf, think about it, a halter, what are they going to do with it, right? They want beef on the table. And it's a long ways from a calf to beef either in the restaurant or, or, at, the, uh, uh, or at the grocery store. So we, we often, we very, we're so used to this working so well that we very often forget about it. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I gave a talk for Lanny White's a Great Alone Cattle Company. So you're yep. talking about a local processing. And um, we, we visited about some of the economics of local processing. I get a beef every year and have it processed lo- locally. And I, we put it in our, in our and, and basically every pound of beef that I get that way, from this animal, um, I only spend about ah, three and a half dollars a pound for it. And that includes your feed costs. Every, yeah, yep. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just we buy the you know the animal. I buy well. I don't buy. My brother gives it to me, but that's okay. I'm not. I, but I'm saying if I bought the animal yep. and then I had it slaughtered and I put that meat in my freezer, I'm at about three and a half, maybe four dollars. That's for every pound. Okay, so that's sort of like this average retail price as well. So it's a quite a bit lower. So why don't more people do that? And, and Lanny and I, and had, we had this conversation at our seminar. And, uh, and the reason is, is that most people don't have a freezer. Most people don't want frozen beef, which I don't understand, but that, yeah. that's fine. I'm, that's fine. That's, that's, that's how they, they want it. Uh, most people don't want to put out $2,500 or $3,000 in one slot to get that. Um, uh, if you happen to get a bad one, you know, then yeah. you're stuck with it. There's, there's all of these things why people want. And so, providing fresh beef that has a shelf life of two weeks, three weeks, and have the cut that everybody wants every day in every grocery store in the U.S. is an expensive process, one that most of us are glad to pay for. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, now, now, now let's say because of COVID and other things we've talked about, it's getting more and more expensive to provide these products. And uh, uh, that's just a fact of life. Now, because the price, the price is an indicator, it's a conveying mechanism. It doesn't, it, it isn't the cause. We have higher prices for some reason, probably because of a higher cost. And if the price of retail beef goes up, let's say something crazy like a whole dollar, okay, a whole dollar a pound above that, um, why would we think that that entire amount should be attributable back to the cattle production sector, either feeder cattle or, or, or fat cattle? I mean, the idea here is, is that there's some reason why these dollars are higher. And, and there's, a, there's a chain of, of where those dollars are gonna get distributed. And will cattle producers see some of it? Yes, they certainly will. There's no doubt you can look at the data. One of the interesting things, though, if you take a look at the data over a long period of time, I have the graph for you to show you sometime, and you look at the value that you get from the meat, on average, that comes from uh, the slaughtering sector, so box beef, okay, and from one animal, and you take a look at what people pay for that animal on average, these two numbers are almost identical on average. In other words, packing plants get, for the beef they sell, if they sold it all as box, and they don't, there's especially product, but if they sold it all as boxed, that's about the amount of money they pay for the fat animal. Now you've got all these costs of processing in there and almost all of that has to come out of the sale of byproducts. And, and, and you know, so the industry basically runs on byproduct sales and their premium products and their further processed products, sure, sure, sure. And their quantity gains, all sorts of stuff. But the reality of it is, is that, um, uh, I, I think we're lucky to have a processing sector that works as well as it does um, because you can get rid of these animals. They are processed. They deliver it to uh, U.S. consumers and they do it pretty darn efficiently. Here's about the number. I had it over here uh, getting ready for you. When, when I have a, a smaller plant, because you said you wanted to talk about yeah. smaller plants. Yeah. When I have a smaller plant here in Montana, uh, slaughter an animal for me and fab it. You know, into, into now it's not fab the same way it's fab when it goes to the retail store. So they're not exact apple, but I'm somewhere close to $800 a head to get killed and fabbed. And major packing plants today that do 5,000 head a day on, in some cases, they're somewhere around two to $300 for kill and fab because of the scale they have. And the fact that they can use all those byproducts, they have a market for the hides, which are pretty low right now yeah. because yeah. of international trade problems uh, and, and, the, and the edible and inedible byproducts. So, um, boy, there's, there's a pretty big difference in those two numbers. And so the fact that I'm still getting mine for 350 instead of 600, even though the kill costs are higher for my little plant, um, uh, the difference is, is that I don't have all the retail stuff to handle. I don't have to deal with inventory. I don't have to deal with fresh every day. I don't have to deal with scale. I don't have to deal with, you know, so there's all of these other factors. Distribution, how do you get the meat to, uh, uh, to SCOBY or to Mild City? Or how do you get it over here to Plains? You know, uh, all those things have to happen. And that's that difference. Even though the small plant has this big, has this, has this big kill cost and I get my beef cheaper, I don't have to do all the logistics. I don't have to pay for all the distribution because it's distributed out of my pickup into my freezer. And you have all of these other costs involved. So again, you know, it, it, is, a, uh, it is a big picture. Does it mean we shouldn't pay attention to these things? You know, no, not at all. But we need to understand uh, uh, the entire process and, 
and how uh, a variety of things can cause these logistical problems, even things like higher fuel costs and, and uh, uh, rules on, on truck driving hours, which probably should be in place if you ask me, but these things add cost to the system. And, and the delivery of fresh beef of every cut you want so that Edgar has a tenderloin over there at the Edgar Bar and Grill yep. every Friday night when my little brother goes there, um, he, this is a costly process. And I, I'm actually surprised we do it so well or so cheaply. And as we look at the local processors, some of the uh, on a <clears throat> other podcast I host, the Cattleman's Call podcast, we've discussed uh, the local uh, local. Uh, uh, to consumer market uh, with uh, with mm-hmm. a uh, smaller uh, scaled uh, packing plant. Uh, no, it's a local meat shop. That that's what it is. It's not a packing. Sure. It's a local meat shop out in Minnesota. Um, they had a different outlook on you know wanting to be USDA certified um, mm-hmm. because every they make more money being local. Um, yep. Then you get other producers, whether it's in Illinois or down south. Uh, and their customers are around these larger metropolitan areas. We look at our friends, uh, Jake and Chuck Fettis, uh, with Fettis, uh, family meats and yeah. red Angus, they bought the Amsterdam meat shop and they heck, have a heck of a market just down the road here in Bozeman mm-hmm. and, because you have these populations and, and, and I, I pass all my producers uh, and friends out there's names off to people that are looking to buy local, but what are some of the concerning things you see as we see more of these family operations finish out? Maybe it's, 10 head, maybe it's a hundred head. Um, obviously they're weighing the risk and they're trying to pencil this out. What are some of the concerns though you see with more folks coming into the local uh, beef market? Um, are there any concerns? I, I'm sure there are, but what, what are some things that people may be um, having rose colored glasses on with this situation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so instead of concerns, I'll just say, um, first of all, isn't it great that we have a, we have a, we have a country with a market oriented system that when people want certain things, they can get it. Yep. You, you don't produce a product like an Edsel and sell them if people don't want them. You know, you, 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 people have to have to buy something from you. And if they're gonna buy something from you, they have to want to buy that from you. Um, now, th- that's number one. Think of it, probably out of 190 countries in the world, this is only true for a lane 30, maybe, maybe 40, where, where when people want something. In most countries, people can't get any food. Venezuela being the latest, uh, yeah. uh, let alone local or organic. So people often ask me, what do you think about organic or never ever three or natural or grass fed? Or I think, I think it's all terrific that, that people who want certain attributes can get that. Now, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a fan of wanting a certain attribute and then claiming that it's so much better for yeah. everybody else than other attributes. I'm, I'm yep. not, that's not what markets are supposed to do. Markets provide information. And if you want Local, you can go get that. That's terrific. Uh, and and I, 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 or never ever three or home run free or any of those kinds of things. No, I think it's absolutely wonderful. Now, um, are you going to, would you expect to pay more for special products like that? Of course. Okay. You, you are going to pay more and that's okay too. As long as you don't force everyone to pay more who may not be all that interested in that particular attribute. So I, I think it's terrific. As far as caution, I, I, I'm not telling any of these folks they don't know, uh, 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 there's risk because uh, as, as many people, uh, at uh, uh, Lanny and others have, have told me, there's no problem to get rid of the steaks. That, that, isn't, that isn't the issue. The issue is how do you get rid of all the hamburger? Yep. Because half of that beef animal is gonna be hamburger. 
And is it the right leanness or, or, or does it have enough fat in it? And where are you going to market that product? What are you going to do with byproducts? Um, are you going to throw them away? That's what, that's what they do at the, the packing plant that I use. They, they, uh, we're sustainable. We throw it all out. They, they slaughter them out behind the corral and we feed the coyotes and the dogs and the, you know, the, the, the magpies and everything else. So, I mean, we're, we're very much, you know, into that sort of thing, but it's all laying back there and it's wasted. Um, uh, and so uh, we're going to, you know, what are we going to do with, as we have more and more of these local things, what do we do with the byproducts? Are we going to uh, incinerate them? Are we going to put landfills? Uh, are we going to find the farms like ours to leave them out there because in a couple of days they're gone anyway? So we leave some value behind when we do this, but that's not my decision. That's the decision of the person who is going to take that risk. Um, that the, that's the only that really isn't of concern. I mean, I, I think people would if, if it's valuable to to move hide somewhere else, they will. Uh, so I, I think that the hardest thing is is that uh, these are these are not for the faint of heart. If you're going to run these kind of operations, they they have and, and you know the other problem you have is and and we've done a little bit of this ourselves is that the the problem of liability, um, consumer liability issues. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I sell a product and someone uh, gets sick. Now, they could have gotten sick because they didn't treat the product right. They could have gotten sick because there's something wrong with the product. I don't know. But those liability issues are, are very real. And uh, uh, like I said, not for the faint of heart. Uh, and, and one should be properly insured uh, against those sorts of things. So it, it, it's not a market issue. It's an individual firm uh, risk issue. Well, and again, we have seen such an uptick in these local uh, meat shops, butcher yeah. shops that are doing, you know, maybe 10 head a day, 50 yeah. head a week type of a deal. And I, 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 I always say there's nothing more American than seeing butcher shops on Main Street. And, and so I, I applaud all the, the resources that have been put into place across all, all the nation and helping these smaller processors get up and going. You see a lot online. I, 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 it, I, I, I really don't like social media. I think it breeds a lot of misinformation because people don't go read the full facts <laughs> sure. uh, a lot of the time. Or, or one image can, you know, a meme can, can get people's uh, engines, uh, you know, revving up and, and angry and whatnot. But we see a lot of dialogue about, well, maybe we need to increase our packing capacity on a local uh, uh, level up, up here in Montana, for example, that could maybe do 500 head a week. You know, we are seeing more corn growing up here. We are seeing soybeans growing up here. So that needs to be increased uh, um, uh, feeder capacity, depending on that. Maybe it's a co-op model where you have to grade, have to have a, a choice or select grading uh, to be able to sell, or you're not going to get the price, you know, that is set at that and whatnot. But we look up to Great Falls where that community is opposing a, a larger scaled processing facility like that. Yeah. And that might be different in Eastern Montana, but, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we saw folks try to start this and it failed. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I'll address that a little bit. I mean, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with people uh, being concerned about the environment around mm -hmm. their community. I mean, that's their right to be concerned. The question is, can you mitigate uh, various things? If nothing else, just think of truck traffic. I mean, I, 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 to keep a major packing plant going, if you're going to do, you're not talking about 5,000 head a day, but just no. 5,000 yeah. head a day places. They've got, I don't think you can get, well, maybe in the big trucks, they can put 50 head in now, but you've got 100, you got 100 trucks a day coming in and off the interstate. So uh, all of these things are things that need to be considered by, uh, by communities. And, and I think, you know, people need to abide by what communities say they want. On the other hand, communities also say they also want jobs. And so, I mean, you know, there are some trade-offs here. The biggest problem though you have with 
with thinking about a major size packing plant, 500 head, whatever, whatever number you want, is how do you, how do you make this work year round? Mm -hmm. That's part of the logistic system that people, if people, if you want frozen beef, that's not a problem. I mean, because you can slaughter and freeze. But if you want fresh beef, it's very difficult uh, to do that um, in a place like Montana. Now, that means you have to bring beef up from the South uh, because, because different uh, conception and, 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 and uh, breeding dates and all these kinds of things happen. Uh, but just thinking about Northern tier cattle, uh, very difficult to have year round, have those animals the right size at the right time for the logistical process. So that's probably the bigger constraint than anything else. That, and really we're still a feed deficit state. I mean, yeah. we think, you know, I, I've often, I've often wondered about how does, you know, Colorado, then I was up in Alberta around Lethbridge and places like that. And one of the interesting things, if you look at the geographic areas, when they draw a uh, feed in, they draw it from a circle. And in Montana, we have two east-west corridors where we can produce uh, feed grains. And it's really the Yellowstone River Valley and, and, and the Missouri River Valley. Yep. We have an east-west system of transportation and production. And that's very different than, than, than a Colorado, certainly different than a Kansas, yep. uh, and, and very different even than, than uh, Calgary, uh, uh, Lethbridge area, High Plains area up there. Uh, and, and that struck me about the costs of moving things. So if you're going to do it, you still have to be able to outcompete other people in the market. That becomes the key. Uh, and, and, and that becomes the tougher thing to do is to be competitive uh, with the market. Well, and labor again, that's, I think that's one thing that really gets overlooked. And again, I'm all for, for having, you know, sure. uh, a, a medium to larger size of facilities to, to help producers get more money for, for their calves or, you know, you know, if it goes into a local feedlot or if you're part of a co-op system, but you know, people, you know, I, I've heard it from liberal people. I've heard it from conservative people that we just don't want that type of, you know, population living in our community. Yeah. Well, I, I guarantee you, there's folks that aren't going to be able to come in and uh, that that live in a Bozeman or a Great Falls. They're not going to go work in these facilities if they're processing that money head to day because it's a dirty job. Yeah, it's 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 no fun. Um, and so uh, uh, those are those are always concerns that people have, and and whether they're relevant or not, they're still concerns. So, uh, but you have to think about it. You you made a good point about labor. Right now, in many stores. Uh, they're trying to hire people at uh, 17, 18, $19 an hour, and they're not getting them. Um, Taco Bell has a sign on $19 an hour. They can't get enough people. Winco has a sign on, I think it's 18 or $19 an hour. Uh, but then it also includes all the health benefits and it includes uh, 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 medical plans and things like that. And uh, uh, boy, uh, if, if you've, uh, if you had to be through or worked at a packing plant, $20 an hour at, at Winco is, is much preferable uh, for many people. Um, so, and you're right. Uh, the, the, the small plants are doing, they're pretty busy. We, yes. uh, I, I got this beef uh, a month ago, I guess, and we've already scheduled for next year yep. for, for slots. So, so it's pretty busy out there, but they're, uh, the plants we use, they struggle with help too. And they're small. Well, and again, as, as we go back to that labor discussion with a medium to larger size plant for, for Montana uh, standards, um, that also, that, that price of that labor, you know, if they're paying, you know, with benefits and everything, that might be $25, $30 an hour with all of the insurance and, and benefits oh, every and everything. Bit it, every yeah. bit of that. 
that still impacts the price that they're willing to pay for those right. cattle to come in, thus right. impacting. And that, that's just what I want people to think about. I, I'm not saying this is that there's a right or a wrong with that, sure. but it all comes down to the economics of it. And, and that's just what I want all of my friends and everyone just to, to, to maybe, you know, think about that a little bit differently yeah. and, uh, and realize that it's just not that calf that gets shipped off the operation when it's shipped off your operation. And if you don't have an investment in that going in the feedlots, that's where all of these decisions come into it. Um, because it's just, it's so much bigger than, than we think about it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, see, and here you said you didn't learn anything in my class. Look, <laughs> <laughs> it was great being an egg ed student though <laughs> um you know dr bresser i know the golf course is probably going to open up at around noon so you probably uh gotta go uh gotta go put on your shorty shorts and and go get get ready to, to putt out there i'm and, quite and a slight by the way but go ahead yeah <laughs> um any last thoughts just uh, any optimism that you have for the industry a joke just anything that you would like to share with our listening audience today before we wrap up today's conversation i appreciate you taking the time here and talking with us well over an hour about uh, all these things that folks are thinking about and, and weighing them down first of all it's my pleasure um secondly um we all have a tendency to uh, equate two events as one causing the other because we see them happen at the same time and very often uh, and almost always there's much more going on than one would think um your comment about if we had uh, more feedlots here and a packing plant here we would, you know, certainly you'd have more cattle fed and there'd be some value created there, but you have to compete against the rest of the country. So the question is, where's your competitive advantage? Yeah. And if you don't have a competitive advantage, the only thing you're saving is transportation, you know, moving the animals somewhere else. So uh, after they're finished. So I think, you know, the, uh, the bigger picture is always uh, uh, the hardest one to comprehend because there's so much we don't know. I, there's so much I don't know about the logistics system. Uh, so when you see some of these things happening, I think one thing to remember is, first of all, um, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activities involved in going from, especially in the livestock industry, to a finished product. And we have to make sure we understand this. Secondly, if we're going to intervene in a market, in, in, whether it's international trade, whether it's how you sell cattle, or what, if, you're, if you're a cow-calf producer, how would you feel if, if you, they said uh, every animal has to be sold uh, on a face-to-face -face negotiation rather than with electronic means? you would instantly go, wait a minute, I, I sell my cat electronically. I use the video auctions, right? I don't, you know, so if we're going to intervene, there better be a darn good reason. Uh, and if we're going to do that, we have to make sure we do it in the way that, that does some good as opposed to uh, just creating some harm. And we very often don't understand the unintended consequences of, of, of many actions. And finally, optimism Look, um, uh, cattle prices are going to be above their long-term trend uh, this year. Um, uh, uh, we have an economy that's going to be recovering uh, as we get out of this COVID uh, uh, stuff. Um, um, we have an economy, we have a market where people can do what they want in terms of if you want to produce a certain type of animal and can find a market for it. It's fantastic. No one has you don't have to get permission. You can do those sort of things. So of course, uh, uh, we live in a place where we have Decent law and order, property rights, um, um, good infrastructure, good education. You know, we're, we're very lucky. Um, so much of the world, I teach, a, I teach a class in the wintertime on comparing economic systems around the world. And we just forget how fortunate we are to have the situation we have here. All you have to do is look at 
I said like one of 140 other countries and, uh, and it's not nearly uh, uh, the situation we have here. So I, I think because of all of that, we are, we're, we're really lucky. And, uh, um, you know, and, and so, so I, I think you have to be optimistic. We have uh, so many advantages over the rest of the world. Um, even though uh, we have a high standard of living, we still have great productivity advantages. We just have to make sure that um, we don't lose those advantages, which can be done pretty quickly, really. Uh, many countries, Venezuela was one of the ton, 10 richest countries in the world uh, uh, up until about World War II, um, and they can't make the lights come on. Uh, and, and they have the, larger, the world's largest oil supplies, and they can't, and they can't they can't make their own gasoline. So I mean, you can you can lose those advantages pretty quickly. So you have to be pretty diligent. Um, but no, uh, w- why wouldn't you be optimistic, man? It's a great day, and the golf course is open at noon. <laughs> well, again, Dr. Gary Brester joining us here today. As always, a pleasure, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your soapbox moments with us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And in addition, on to the end of the conversation I had with Dr. Gary Brester, we mentioned the closed-door meeting between the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Farm Bureau, Farmers Union, RCAF USA, and the U.S. Cattlemen's Association that occurred in Phoenix just last week. In terms of the record packer profits, details actually emerged about two hours after the conversation between Dr. Brester and I. So I thought I would add that on for our listeners that want to stay tuned in here to learn more about it. The groups convened at the request of the Livestock Marketing Association to discuss challenges involved in the marketing of finished cattle with the ultimate goal of bringing about a more financially sustainable situation for cattle feeders and cow-calf producers. The groups talked openly and candidly about packer concentration, price transparency and discovery, packer oversight, the Packers and Stockyards Act enforcement, level of captive supply, and packer capacity. The groups all agreed to take their respective organizations for considerations these actions. Expedite the renewal of USDA's livestock mandatory reporting, including formula-based price subject to the same reporting requirements as negotiated cash in the creation of a contract library. The next is to demand the Justice Department to issue a public investigation status report as a warrant and conduct joint DOJ and USDA oversight of packer activity moving forward. And finally, the third was to encourage investment in and development of new independent local and regional Packers. The unprecedented meeting brought together diverse producer organizations to identify issues and discuss these potential solutions. All these issues and action items are not comprehensive due to time constraints of the meeting. Attending organization representatives were pleased to have reached consensus on many issues and are committed to the ultimate goal of achieving a fair and transparent finished cattle market. Well, that will do it for today's Lanecast Ag Podcast. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.